If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. upended this piece of iron, lowered the piston into it, and presto, it fit perfectly. And James Watt connected all the bits and bobs that make it into a steam engine. And all of a sudden, we have a highly efficient steam engine that didn't leak any steam. And effectively, the Industrial Revolution as a result of that was off to the races. That was Simon Winchester discussing the Industrial Revolution. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For today's episode, we've caught up with the best-selling author Simon Winchester, whose latest book is entitled Exactly, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. And that was the topic of his discussion with our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Uh, You've written books on subjects from the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary to the explosion of Krakatoa, and your latest book is called Exactly, How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World, although it's published in the US with the title The Perfectionists. Um, And central to the idea is that precision is an essential component of the modern world, yet it's invisible and it's something that we take for granted. Um, But you've um, actually put uh, a date to the beginning of precision, I believe. So what can you tell us about that? The date that I identify anyway as the beginning of precision, if you like, is the 4th of May, 1776, um, which some people call Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you, is what they say, Um, which I think is rather nicely appropriate. But the reason what actually happened on that day involved James Watt, inventor of the steam engine, and a man called John Wilkinson, who was an ironmaster who lived on the English-Welsh border. And he made cannons for the Royal Navy. And um, he did so by boring a hole into a large slab of iron rather than casting them as used to occur. And cast iron breaks very easily, uh, particularly when it's you've got a cannonball and explosions and all the rest of it. So um, he decided that he wanted to turn the drill of his um, boring machine um, using a steam engine. So he asked James Watt if he could bring a steam engine over. And it was about 70 miles away from where Watt's um, factory was. And on seeing it, um, this monster engine, he said, well, this is the most inefficient thing I've ever seen. Steam goes all over the place. The piston doesn't fit inside the cylinder. Let me make a cylinder for you. And James Watt, who had been wrestling with the problem of inefficiency, said, okay. So 
they mounted a, a new and enormous drill against a very, very big piece of iron and drilled a hole which was exactly the diameter plus a little bit of the piston that James Watt had. And it was straight and true, thanks to Wilkinson's technique. And then they upended this piece of iron, lowered the piston into it, and presto, it fit perfectly. And James Watt connected all the bits and bobs that make it into a steam engine. And all of a sudden, we have a highly efficient steam engine that didn't leak any steam. And effectively, the Industrial Revolution as a result of that was off to the races because James Watt said, this is wonderful, you're a miracle worker, I'm going to order 500 uh, cylinders from you. And the thing about precision is making the same thing to the same dimensions over and over and over again. And that's what Wilkinson was able to do. Using his technique of this, this drilling machine that he created, he was able to make them all with a tolerance between the outer edge of the piston and the inner edge of the cylinder of one-tenth of an inch, the thickness, as they said, of an English shilling. So that it was a transformative moment, and it was literally the 4th of May, 1776, the birth of true precision and coincidentally, the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Could we perhaps, um, first of our listeners, give, give a quick definition of, of what you mean by precision and the, what you're looking at? There not being any synonyms in the English language, it is easy to get confused because the two words that are bandied around almost um, equally is precision, or precision and accuracy, and they're very different things. Um, consider a dartboard. If you're throwing darts uh, towards a target, your intention is to hit the center, is to hit the bull. If you do that, then you have achieved great accuracy. Accuracy is achieving something close to your intention, to what you wanted. Precision is different. If you throw a dart or a series of darts at a dartboard and they don't necessarily hit the middle, but all hit the same place, let's say at 10 o'clock, one, two, three, four, ten, a hundred, all the same place, you have achieved great precision. Precision's doing the same thing time after time after time. If you can combine precision and accuracy, in other words, hit the ball time after time, time after time, then you've achieved an ideal world. But the crucial thing to think about is in industrial production, making things that are interchangeable because they're all exactly the same size. Interchangeable parts, crucial to the making of cars and aeroplanes, everything mechanical today is to make the same thing with the same dimensions time after time after time. That's precision. Mm -hmm. And as you've um, just alluded to, it's obviously a really key time um, in global history in terms of the Industrial Revolution. And I think you, you're very keen to make the point, it seemed, that it's not one inventor of precision. It's a mixture of advances and some overlap and, and, and it's very much a, a global process. Yes, but all effectively happening in those crucial years between about 1770 and 1800. You've got um, a man called Joseph Brammer who made locks, a man called Henry Maudsley who made things that were perfectly flat, a man over in France called Honoré Blanc who made the first interchangeable parts for the flintlock for a, for a musket, for a gun, this being seen 
by Thomas Jefferson, who happened to be the American minister in Paris at the time, telling his colleagues back in Washington, something amazing is going on in Britain, something amazing is going on in France. We should do the same thing in America. So you're quite right. It was an amalgam of many people. It wasn't just one man. Although if you can identify one man, it would be the heroic figure, rather crazy figure, it has to be said, of of John uh, Iron Mad Wilkinson, a man who was obsessed with iron. He had an iron desk, he had an iron table, he had an iron boat, he had an iron coffin in his workshop, which he used to lie in and jump out of and surprise people who came into his workshop. And he's buried in that coffin today under an iron obelisk in the Lake District. So a slightly eccentric fellow, but he, if there's any one person who's key to precision, it's him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sounds like an absolutely fascinating chap. But the the point is as well, your book is is filled with these um, characters, and I'd love to talk about uh, Joseph Brahma and Henry Maudsley, who you just mentioned, and um, the lockbreaker challenge. The interesting thing about locks is that they were the next up in the in the development of precision things, for a very interesting social reason. That in the eighteenth century and before. The wealthy in England tended to live in the countryside. So they had mansions or castles or estates, and they were protected from trouble or theft or whatever by fences and walls and by servants. And this changed. The moment the Industrial Revolution began, then fortunes started to be made by people who had factories, powered by James Watt's steam engines, um, in places like London and Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool, which grew with great speed as a direct consequence of the Industrial Revolution. So all of a sudden, you have very rich people who have made their fortunes in factories living cheek by jowl with people who are, let's say, very poor. And sociologically, it's undeniable that putting rich and poor people next to each other causes envy, and that causes, among other things, crime. So what did the rich do? They built themselves, particularly in London, very sturdy houses protected by very thick front doors, protected by unbreakable locks. And the man that made these locks most effectively was a chap called Joseph Brahma. And Brahma invented many things. He invented the flush toilet. He invented the the beer engine, which stopped the bartender having to go down to the cellar all the time. He made a machine for counting banknotes. He um, made fountain pens. The first fountain pen was made by Joseph Brammer, but he also, covering his bets, he made a machine for making hundreds of quills at the same time, just in case the fountain pen I did didn't take off. But most importantly, he made locks. And one of them he made so intricately and so precisely, using the same techniques as Wilkinson, only on a much smaller scale, that he said, this is unbreakable. And he had offices at 124 Piccadilly, and uh, in the, then more or less out in the countryside, uh, in Western London, and he had a bow-fronted window, and on a velvet pillow in 1790, he put one of his locks with a little notice saying, anyone that can break this lock without smashing it to bits, of course, um, I'll pay 200 guineas to, which in 1790 was a great deal of money. So people would come and go and say, I can pick this lock, and they all failed because it had 18 levers and springs, and the intricacy was quite astonishing. Um, Anyway, the years went on. Joseph Brahma himself died in about 1810, I think. His son took over the business, the business which still exists in London today. And it wasn't until 1851 that the Great Exhibition in Hyde Park in Crystal Palace um, 
all the great engine, steam engines and ships and so forth are on display, but also down one end of the exhibition centre was the Brahma lock, still unbroken after 61 years. And an American called Charles Hall came along and said, I can break it. He in, had invented a lock himself called the Parautoptic lock, horrible name, and he had that on display at the exhibition, but said, not only do I want you to buy my lock, but I can pick yours. And so they said, be my guest. You know, it's been here for 61 years, so have, your, have a go. So he, using a lot of intricate tools and magnifying glasses and very powerful illuminations to look into the middle of the tube that was uh, central to the lock. He worked and worked and worked for 51 hours. And at 51 hours, there was a satisfying click and the lock opened. And the Brahma company said, all right, well, you've beaten us, but here's your 200 gold guineas. But we must say that we think, as in public relations terms, we're not worried because it's going to take a burglar 51 hours to break one of our locks, and I think we're pretty secure. So, you know, you've won your money. We've kept our, the integrity of our company. Now let's have a look at your lock. So someone had a look at his lock, and they picked it in 15 minutes with one piece of wood. And, uh, you know, collapse of Stout Party, everyone was shocked. But the name of the person who picked that lock uh, was... Uh, later to become very well known, it was Elihu Yale. So the Yale lock was born on the heels of the ignominy, if you like, of Charles Hall, the man <laughs> who broke the Brahma lock. And um, also um, uh, someone who worked with Joseph Brahma was was Henry Maudsley, who who might be more well known to those who might um, know more about engineering. Um, and he was a hugely significant figure. Can you talk a little bit about his work? Yes, I mean, Maudley in a technical sense, the importance of him, people like my father would revere him because he invented flatness, if you like. He, he worked out how to machine metal such that it was perfectly, perfectly flat, which is very important in the making of machine tools and the making of anything to do with um, of high precision engineering. But the thing that he's probably most famous for is to do with the Royal Navy and the manufacture of the pulley blocks, which you'll probably remember from school, give you great mechanical advantage if you want to raise a sail or an anchor. A pulley block, usually made of wood with metal wheels or sometimes wooden wheels inside it, around which ropes are, are, are spun and you can use them to raise and lower things. The Navy at the time, and we're talking about uh, the beginning of the 19th century, had a need for about 150,000 blocks a year. And they were mostly made, back in the day, by craftsmen working in their cottages in the south of England, doing it by hand, turning elm trees into pulley blocks and then sending them along to the naval dockyards in Portsmouth. But Henry Maudsley said, I can break down all the processes that are needed to turn a tree into a series of pulley blocks um, into tasks that can be accomplished by a machine. And so he did that. He had the backing of the Navy and all sorts of important people in the story. But ultimately, he created 43 enormous iron engines, each one doing a separate task, you know, polishing the wood or turning it into chamfering the edges or turning the, making the little wheels that go inside it, such that you could put uh, literally an elm tree into one into a hopper at the end of 
the production line, and 43 machines later, out would be spat these various pulley blocks. Well, that was the first, if you like, factory assembly line in Britain in the world. It was called the Portsmouth Block Mills, and they existed still working, all the original machines still working until 1965. Such was the durability of the things that Henry Maudsley had made. Um, But one of the social consequences was that all the men that had made these pulley blocks and fully sailing warship would need about 1,300. So there was enormous demand for these things. The men who made them all of a sudden were out of work. And this factory, the Portsmouth Block Mills, required only 10 unskilled men with um, oil cans and cotton waste to go around lubricating the machines. The machines all powered, I should say, by James Watt's steam engines. And so the social consequences, all of a sudden, craftsmen were thrown out of work and labourers lost their job in, in very large numbers. So the initial the, the impact of precision was beginning to make itself felt. Mm-hmm. And so the legacy of, of machines making machines is something we still very much live with today, obviously. And and another um, very interesting uh, figure in your book is Honoré Blanc, who um, he he looks at the different components of a gun. Um, could you talk, talk about, um, firstly, the problem that he was trying to solve um, that existed with, with guns and how he completely revolutionised gun manufacturing? Yes, if you... Um were out on the battlefield and you were firing a flintlock. This is before rifles. This is, you know, you stuffed gunpowder down the into the barrel. You cocked the uh, the trigger. You um, pulled, pulled the trigger. It would strike a spark off a flint. This would ignite the powder and propel the bullet uh, and hopefully meet its target. The um, problem was that the flintlock mechanism was a relatively... Um, fragile thing. And you would find that, particularly in the heat of battle, when you're firing every minute or so, um, triggers would break, uh, the thing that held the flint wouldn't hold it anymore, the spring would fall out. And every time that happened, then the poor infantryman would have to take his rifle back to the armourer and get a new gun, because each gun was handmade uh, to its own dimensions. But Honoré Blanc said, well, I've just learned what's going on in Britain from people like John Wilkinson and Henry Maudsley and Joseph Brammer. Why don't we break the parts that are necessary for a flintlock into, let's say, 10? There's a, a frizzle, there's a pan, there's a spring, there's a trigger, and make them using jigs and so forth, such that every single one is exactly the same. So that you can have a series of boxes with 50 triggers and 50 frizzle pans and 50 springs, and you could take any one, assemble them all together, and you'd have a flintlock. And this idea of parts that are interchangeable was revolutionary. It had never been tried before. It seems so obvious today, but in uh, early 19th century France and in Britain, it was completely revolutionary. And so he held a, a demonstration of, of what he what he had created, this idea of interchangeable parts. And to it came many distinguished uh, French military people, but also Thomas Jefferson, who was the American minister to France at the time. And they, Blanc said to him, Mr. Jefferson, you know, take a trigger, take a spring, put them all together. 
And he did, and he created the workings of a, of a gun. And he was so astonished. He said, this is just going to make the life of the soldier so much easier. And so he wrote a letter, which was carried on the packet across the Atlantic to the Secretary of War in Washington, D.C., this new government of this new country, and said, I've just been shown a form of manufacturing which is completely new and which I think we should adopt in America. America had two armories making guns, one at Springfield in Massachusetts and the other one in Harpers Ferry in Virginia. And... Um, he said, we've got to adopt this process in our country because we need guns in large numbers to deal with you know, various problems, not least being the Native Americans. Um, so um, get to it. Who wants to get the contract to use interchangeable parts to make guns? And a man who was a heroic figure uh, in American history or supposedly heroic called Eli Whitney, who had made a lot of a, a great name for himself by inventing a machine for... Um, plucking the cotton balls off the cotton plants in the, the southern states, the cotton gin, it was called, said, I'll do it. And so he arranged a demonstration um, for the worthies in Washington about 10 years later uh, in order to get the contract to make guns using interchangeable parts in Virginia. And the trouble was with Eli Whitney is that he was a fraud. He was a con man. And what he did was he, he pre-made all the parts uh, already assembled, and the only thing that was actually interchangeable was that he drilled a, a hole in the stock and said, you can put these the flintlock into that hole, and look, they fit, so I should win the contract. And stupidly, they said, yeah, okay, we're not quite sure we understand what you're doing, but you can have the contract. And so he got the contract, took eight years to deliver the guns. They were all late, and none of them worked. So although his reputation... In, in, to American schoolchildren these days is of a great hero. Within the engineering community, uh, Eli Whitney is regarded as a fraud and a charlatan. But nonetheless, the techniques employed by other people then took over and American manufacturing, based on that French idea, took over and America never looked back. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. These names that we've talked about, uh, Brahma, Maudsley and... and um... Honoré Blanc, they, they're all just a few of the names that you explore. You also look at Joseph Whitworth and Henry Rice and Frank Whittle. Um, and I, I'm really intrigued by the story of how your book came into being. So would you mind sharing um, how, how how the idea started? Yes, I, I was in the middle of another book. This was about seven years ago, I think. And, and I get letters, emails from people all the time saying, I think you should write a book about my great aunt Bertha, who was a nurse in the Boer War and things like that, and all fine and dandy, but none of them really set me afire until uh, six or seven years ago, a man wrote to me from Florida. He was called Colin Povey, and he said he was a a scientific glass blower. He made glass, very intricate glass things for use in laboratories. And he said, I've read all your books and I rather like them, which is always nice to hear. Um, And I wonder if you'd be interested in possibly writing a book about the history of precision, which is invisible, central to all of our lives, but it's rather like the air we breathe or the language we speak. We don't think too much about it. But it did have a a definite beginning, and we're not quite sure where it's going to in the end, but it has a sort of narrative trajectory. What do you think about the idea? And I put it to my publisher, and he said, well, what we're not quite certain about is is that narrative trajectory? How? Do, what device do you use to tell the story? Well, the device I ultimately used was um, based on that John Wilkinson story and about how the tolerance between the outer edge of the piston and the inner edge of the cylinder for the James Watt steam engine being 0.1 of an inch. I thought, wait a minute, if I can look at 0.1 as being the tolerance of an early precise device, and then let's say 0.0001 being the tolerance of, let's say, Joseph Brahma's uh, locks, and then 0.00001 as a part perhaps in a Rolls-Royce motor car, you could use that as a, as a marker, which would give you a chapter, a narrative thrust to the tale. And my publisher seemed to think that was a rather good idea. And so that's what we did. And Colin, he was enormously supportive throughout, but we never met until at the very beginning of my book tour, when the book was published at the beginning of May, he flew up from Florida, where he lives, to Washington, D.C., where the first talk I gave occurred. And there he was, sitting in the front row and uh, it was very emotional seeing this guy who had, he, I, I kept saying, this is your book, Colin. He said, no, 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 it's your book. It's your book. But it was, um, without him, this book never would have been written. Well, I imagine. How brilliant to, to have met him like that. Um, I wonder if, do you think he'd mind you sharing um, his story, his own link to precision? It's an unusual story. I know he wouldn't mind because I wrote about it in the book. And uh, <laughs> he, he, yes, it's, it's in, intriguing. He, his father was a British soldier in the rather sort of unglamorous uh, part of uh, uh, of the army that deals with supplying ammunition to the troops. And in the early 1940s, before America had joined the war, uh, Mr. Povey Sr. was sent over to Washington, D.C. Um, to investigate a problem. And the problem was that in the North African desert, the British guns were firing artillery shells um, 
but many of them were misfiring. Uh, you know, you put a shell into a, a gun and pull the trigger and there's either a, a click and nothing works or it explodes and very dangerous. So um, Mr. Povey Sr. was sent to Washington to investigate why this happened. And he eventually tracked down the manufacturers who were in a factory in, in Detroit and went up and with all these micrometers and calipers and measuring equipment. And no, all the shells, when they came out of the factory, were the precise diameter for the guns that the British were using in the, uh, in, in the desert. So he said, well, whatever happens must have happened in transit. So he got permission from the war office in London to ride with a consignment of shells on the train, which went from Detroit to Washington, D.C., and ultimately to Baltimore. Everything remained exactly the same. And then they were loaded into the hold of a ship, and he went on the ship from Baltimore to Casablanca or somewhere in the North African desert. And then he realized what was happening because there was a massive storm in the middle of the sea. And he went down to the hold and he saw these boxes, wooden boxes of shells being banged back and forth, back and forth. And the tip, sounds awfully dangerous to me, the tip of many, many of the shells hitting the inner part of the hull of the ship. And so ferocious was the storm that the impact was driving the shells back into their brass cartridge cases with such ferocity that it made the outer edges of the brass shell casings expand a fraction by a tenth of a millimeter, a tiny, tiny amount. This meant that when the shells were loaded in Africa and sent off to the various units out in the desert, some of them, that's why it was random and mysterious, the shells were a little too big and misfired. So he said, all you have to do is to pack them more securely, put wood all around the shells so that no matter how ferocious the banging was uh, in the ship's hull, it wouldn't damage the shells. And overnight, uh, the problem was, was solved. So he was now still in the North African desert because he had been on the ship, if you remember, and he was without orders and didn't know what to do. And uh, he had a great deal of money because he was accumulating all his pay all the time. And eventually, you know, had a nice time lying in the sun in some oasis or something. And then he went to, I've got to go back to America. So he bribed his way using bottles of whiskey uh, to um, Timbuktu, I think, and then eventually got to Miami and made his way back to Washington to find that not only had his units been sent somewhere else, but all his clothes had been sold or changed size to uh, give to a smaller man and his quarters had been given away and he was missing presumed dead. So he was declared dead. And he told them he actually wasn't dead. And they said, oh, sorry about that. Go to Baltimore because that's where your unit um, was now stationed. So he went and rejoined his unit. And the American secretary of the unit he fell in love with, they married, and uh, he remained in America ever since as an American citizen. Or rather, I should say, sorry, and, and he was born as a result of that. And he, therefore, was born as a result of precision. <laughs> and uh, your book born as a result of his story. <laughs> Indeed. Why is is precision so Im important? And obviously you, you've sum summarised why it was so important at um, during the Industrial Revolution. Um, but today, how do we balance that against too much precision, I suppose? Yes, I think that's a, a brilliant question, and thank you for asking it, because I, as I sort of warmed to the theme, as it were, not only do I look at the 
you know, the somewhat deleterious uh, social consequences of too much precision, and our reliance on, on very, very finely wrought pieces of metal, which unfortunately, when they're so small, they break and with, often with catastrophic consequences. Um, and also, we're dealing with electronic precision of such enormously, um, enormously minute, if that doesn't sound a, a contradiction in terms, uh, you're down at atomic levels where things behave very peculiarly. And this statistic, which I think is one of the most extraordinary statistics that I came across, that there are now not just 4.3 billion transistors in every iPhone, but there are now more transistors in the world then there are leaves on all the trees in all the world. And we know that as a fact. It's 13 trillion transistors are being made every day. These are, are unutterably small. And we must perhaps, both in the mechanical world and the electronic world, perhaps be reaching the limits of precision. But the more important thing is, are we worshipping it? Are we revering it? Are we fetishizing it? And perhaps leaving behind our fondness for the imprecise, for the handmade, for craftsmanship. And I think it's a very real risk in the West particularly, but not, interestingly enough, in two countries that I've come to know reasonably well in recent years, and that's Japan and Korea. I mean, Japan and Korea, we would our first thought is these are countries that make things of astonishing precision, you know, companies like Canon and Samsung and Honda and so forth. But in fact... They have a reverence still for craftsmanship in fields like woodworking and ceramics and uh, lacquerware and, and metalware, indeed. And both governments, both the government in Seoul and the government in Tokyo, awards the title Living National Treasure to people, usually quite elderly, who have spent a lifetime devoted to things like working in bamboo and working with lacquerware and gives them a pension and gives them as much societal reverence as is given to the makers of, you know, the quartz wristwatches and so forth. And I think that's a thoroughly good thing, that there's a sort of equipoise between precision, which we now know we need for the modern world to function, but craftsmanship, which we know to keep in touch with our souls, if you like. And so the fact that in Japan and Korea, uniquely, as much worship and reverence is given to titanium as is given to bamboo seems to me a thoroughly good thing, and it's something we should emulate in the West. That was Simon Winchester. Exactly How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World is out now in the UK, published by William Collins. And in the US, it's published by Harper, with the different title, The Perfectionists. And if this has whetted your appetite for science and technology, then do check out our sister title, BBC Focus magazine, which is available in all good retailers. And they also produce a free weekly science Focus podcast, which you can get hold of through all the usual podcast providers. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but please do come back on Monday when we'll be joined by Christopher Andrew to explore the history of espionage. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, 
don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 